Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we took a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Seidel, your other co-host and communication specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the host, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, December 20th, 2020. Happy holidays, impending holidays, occurring holidays, past holidays. Merry everything, whatever you want. The year is almost done. That's worth celebrating. Today on Polylog, we're going to be continuing our new format of me showing you, Brendan, what stood out to me on the shows I consumed. And me showing you what stood out to me. And then we have a discussion. So it should be exciting and interesting. We have really not said anything to each other, really, about the shows <laughs> or about the segments that we're going to be highlighting. So it's very interesting. <laughs> It's very tempting to like share with you my thoughts while we're each in our like respective little bubble watching different shows. And thank you to listeners who have let us know how they feel about the new format, excited by it, and the the honesty of the conversation. Yeah. You can say rawness, I think was one of the (laughs) (laughs) adjectives that was used to describe the new structure. So we appreciate that feedback and any more feedback anyone has about this new structure. If this is your first time tuning in this week, when we're trying this out, let us know your thoughts. Or if you're just kind of letting it percolate there, just let us know. Absolutely. So we're going to, we each have three different kind of sub themes. First, we're going to look at quality and questionable. So moments that were either quality moments of journalism or questionable moments. Then we're going to look at something that stood out to you in terms of politics, an interesting moment in political ramifications. And then we'll look at something that stood out in journalism, something that stood out in journalism. So Brendan, you start off first, quality or questionable. Do you have anything for either of them? So why don't we start off with what I thought was one of the worst parts of the two shows I had. And first, I got to say what shows I looked at. I looked yeah, at, what'd you watch? This week, I only looked... Well, I shouldn't say the word this week. We yeah, should it's... ban that from our dialogue. Unless we're talking about the show. Yeah, unless we're talking about the show this week. <laughs> We've so, been doing the show for three years. <laughs> so today, no. today, I took a look at Fox News Sunday and State of the Union. Just two for me. Right. And you looked at the other two, or the other three. Right. I watched This Week on ABC with George Stephanopoulos, Face the Nation, and Meet the Press. So for me, of the two shows I looked at, one of the worst parts, one of the things that really stood out to me as a questionable thing that was going on, and I could probably answer that question for you because I didn't think it was any good, was the partisanship on Fox News Sunday that has just stood out like a sore thumb. On the panel? No, just in in basically in what they decided was the most important thing at various moments. Oh, interesting. So here is how Chris Wallace decided to begin this show. And of course, if you've been looking at the news this week, there's been a lot of news about the vaccine, the rollout. This is the first week of the rollout of the vaccine. There's been a lot of news about the Russian hack that happened. There's been news that came out on Friday into Saturday about the craziness of President Trump's Oval Office meetings with 
disgraced former national security advisor, now pardoned national security advisor Michael Flynn, raising the possibility of martial law and appointing a special counsel to investigate voter fraud. Just lots, lots of craziness going on. And of course, we've had Biden continuing his cabinet selections. Here's how Chris Wallace chose to begin his show. I'm Chris Wallace. President-elect Biden's nominees facing scrutiny from both the right and left, one month from Inauguration Day. There are people of uh, the highest character, varied experiences and backgrounds. Joe Biden putting together his administration, but will the Senate vote to confirm his cabinet? Plus, growing pressure for a special counsel to investigate the president-elect's son, Hunter. We'll discuss it all with incoming White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, only on Fox News Sunday. So apparently the top story of the week was Biden having some criticism about the people he chose to fill his cabinet with. It's not even like extreme criticism. It's not like, you know, Republicans have demanded that he pull someone back from the nomination process because it was discovered they did something elusive with their taxes or illegal or whatever. No, none of that. It's just run of the mill. Ah, I don't really feel you know great about this person or I do feel great about this person. That is not the top story of the week. And the second not top story is the Hunter Biden. It's like the Hunter Biden story. That is not a top story of the week. Nobody would say that <laughs> I mean, was Fox a top News story of the week. Fox News has been trying to claim that that's the Fox, the top news story for literally three years. Yes, but <laughs> the, it's not true. It is a story. There was a development or two, but that is not the top story of the week. And it did not need to lead your political news segment. And it's also lead a weekly show. It's, yeah. That's the difference, right? It's that different. only happens once a week. Yeah. Like, th this is the highlight commentary that you're making for the past six days. Okay. But then, okay, then he moves on to his interview with Jen Psaki, right? And you might say, hey... We're going to cut him slack because that was his his first interview was indeed with the incoming press secretary for the Biden administration. Right. So maybe he should lead with some, you know, critical questions he might ask her, lead his show that way. Maybe you give him the benefit of the doubt. OK, well, let's see how he began that conversation, what he thought was the most important thing to to address right off the bat. And joining us now, incoming White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. Jen. Welcome back to Fox News Sunday. Good morning, Chris. Great. Thanks for having me, Chris. Great to be here. Uh, this week, the incoming White House Deputy Chief of Staff, Jen O'Malley Dillon, uh, talked about working with Republicans. And here's what she said. I'm not saying they're not a bunch of effers. Mitch McConnell is terrible. She later apologized for the words, but not the sentiment. Why does President-elect Biden think he's going to be able to do business with such people? Well, first, Chris, I know everybody's busy around this holiday season, but I'd encourage everybody to read the full context of her interview. And what she really talked about through the course of the interview was the importance of working together, that compromise is essential, that we need to listen to one another. So, you know, of course, I'm sure her mother didn't like the words she used, but uh, that's a sentiment that the president-elect has sent to all of us, and we're expected to uh, work toward that goal. 
So I'm going to use a word I maybe have never used here on Polylog before, but I think it is warranted under these circumstances. <laughs> Which word are you going to use? I don't give a fuck oh. what the context is that is being expressed here and that Jen Psaki is encouraging Chris Wallace to, to look into. The fact that a d- incoming deputy <laughs> White House press secretary in an interview used a curse word is not the top question to be asking (laughs) during the worst phase of the worst pandemic in a century, during a week when the president raised the idea of eliminating all law and installing a government dictatorship. I do not believe the top story to ask about is that a deputy incoming White House press secretary cursed once. Give me a fucking break. (laughs) Um, I have not really been following this story because one, I can't can't even believe it's a story. Two, anyone who is like, shock and awe that someone could call Republican, let a Democrat, you know, a top Democratic strategist who's been working her ass off probably all year for the past two years for the Biden campaign feels that way about some of the Senate Republicans. Like, okay, this is how people feel that that doesn't seem shocking to me. And three, like President Trump has said so many despicable things as president in rallies on mic, like in front of tens of thousands of people. Like that's not even to talk about like what he says is locker talk right and he's talking really about assaulting women it's i i I like literally cannot even engage in this story because it's it's just like unfathomable to me and then me personally like if you don't curse a little bit or a lot or yeah really if you like i don't even understand those brains who can be like completely potty free like i don't even like i I I can't even wrap my head around that either (laughs) it is such a non-story and yeah, the fact, non-story is exactly the way to call it. That a venerated, decades-long, lifetime-serving journalist <laughs> like Chris Wallace has chosen this to be the top question that he asks on his once-a-week news broadcast. Is trash. Is complete trash. Yeah, yeah. 100%. It is, it is an embarrassment to Chris Wallace. He should be like, embarrassed. Does he go home and he's like, honey? I got to ask about the fucker question. <laughs> like, no, no one cares. It's it's absolutely it's, it's zero like people. That is more of an embarrassment than him hosting that train wreck <laughs> of a debate. Because he oh, tried man. and you he know, worked hard and he went to it honestly and as an honest journalist focused on hard issues and topics and questions. And this <laughs> what this is this is embarrassing. Brendan, I just realized something. Um 2020 has been hard on everybody, right? Yeah. Total dumpster fire every year. But on Chris Wallace's list of 2020, he also has, I hosted the worst presidential debate ever. In in history, (laughs) yes. That's rough. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, uh, for someone to take the title of hosting the more worst, the worser (laughs) debate, there's going to have to be a death on the stage. <laughs> or blood is going to have to fly. Yeah. <laughs> to include swords of some kind. Yes. All right, Naomi, what was your questionable moment? Okay, so my questionable moment was 
something that I saw on this week. George Stephanopoulos was hosting and he talked to Senator Mark Warner. He's a Democrat from Virginia. And most of the interview was about the cyber attack. Mm-hmm. But there was one flimsy, pathetic, tiny little throwaway question at the end for something that's actually ginormous. And that's the new COVID relief bill that was just agreed, agreed upon this weekend. Take a listen to the extent of the conversation around COVID economic relief. Before I let you go, is this COVID relief deal going to come together today? And is it something you can live with? Well, let's let's put it like this. I was with Senator Schumer last night in his office till about 11 o'clock. I was glad to see that Senator Toomey accepted uh, Senator Schumer's offer on a compromise. Uh, We will preclude uh, three of these facilities from being set up again without congressional approval. What was already the law, we did not think uh, tying the hands of a future Fed or Treasury made any sense. And the great news is... uh, Congress is not going to be the Grinch. We're going to get this package done. And I'm very proud that uh, in many ways this package only came about, George, because a bipartisan group of senators spent a month working hard showing the American people that we can actually do things uh, when we have such an amazing need. So folks who are going to run out of unemployment the day after Christmas or potentially get kicked out of their apartment or those long lines at the food banks, help is on the way. Senator Warner, thanks for your time this morning. Thank you, George. Wow, so glad we gave our legislators a real rigorous conversation about why they think this is enough or why it took so long or what Americans can expect in terms of future relief or if there's anything coming next or, you know, what their expectations are for COVID relief with the new Biden administration. Like, this is just... It, it's an afterthought, right? It, yeah, it's a complete afterthought and, like... I don't know, even just the way George frames these questions and also he's like, thank you for your time. Like at no point does it express the desperation of Americans across this country. And that's my like, that's the part that makes like my blood literally boil where they're like, oh, thank you so much, Senator. You got it done. Good job. High five. And it's like, really? Kids are going to have... <laughs> pretty crappy Christmases and parents are freaking out how they're going to stay in their homes and people are doing funerals over Zoom and are trying to figure out how to keep their family like clothed and sheltered. Like it's just businesses are shuttering all over the place in every community in every city across America and like if if the focus of the like, obviously, this legislation is going to the pain of that, right? But if when you're talking about it, it doesn't reflect that, then you're not doing a good job. Yeah, and there's no scrutiny, like you said, on the deal itself. Is this a good deal? Is this a meaningful deal? Why did the deal take months and months and months? And why is this number the right number? Like, so many critical questions that should have been being asked for months, which we were calling for for months, mm-hmm. and wasn't covered largely. And now, as we're there on the brink of it, Still, no critical questions. Yeah, and like, I get it. It's good that like some help is better than no help, of course. But that doesn't mean they get a pass for like literally doing the worst job ever. I don't know. It like, it reminds me of like a friend who has a really crappy boyfriend or something. And they're like, he stopped cheating on me. And it's like, do you congratulate that? Do you say, yay, good for you? It's like, no, girl, you got to get out of there. Like run (laughs) or why are you putting up with this or like what makes you think this isn't gonna like you probe (laughs) right when 
the behavior is completely questionable and there's zero probing here. Yeah, like like I said, it's clearly an afterthought at the end of the interview. Oh, I got to check this box. I asked the question. He spoke some words. And thank you so much, Senator Warner. We're done. Yeah. You're a lot of like if you're listening and you think this is not just like a trash piece of legislation, because, again, we need it. But like a trash conversation like that anger is just so valid. And I just wish journalists could like sit with it longer. Brendan, do you have a quality moment, though? Yeah. So what stood out to me as a quality moment was an interview on State of the Union with Chris Krebs. He is the former director of CISA. It is the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which has the word security in its name a little too many times. But he served previously under or during Trump's tenure. He was the one who was basically fired for saying that it was a very, you know, the most secure election in American history. Well, shortly after he was let go, it was discovered recently that there was a massive, the most massive data intrusion into American government systems in years. It took place, it started in March, we have discovered. So according to Mike Pompeo, this was led, the Secretary of State, this was led by Russia, a Russian intelligence agency that infiltrated a piece of software that is used widely across the government. And it, the piece of software was made by a company called Solar Winds. And this piece of software has periodic updates, just like you have updates on your iPhone or other things. And during one of those updates, the Russians intercepted it and were able to get into the system. They like tagged along yes. to the update. And, and they've been in, you know, the, the Commerce Department systems, the Department of Homeland Security system, Treasury, like energy, energy just so many systems. And private institutions. Yes. And this company, Solar Winds, has more than 300,000 companies as their customers, including most of the nation's Fortune 500 firms. So cool, cool, cool. Great, great weekend for them. Yeah. Yes. Lots of disturbing stuff going on there. Lots of stuff about Trump saying it wasn't Russia, it was China. No surprise there from Trump, but still outrageous. But I just want to say this was a really good conversation. And the reason it was is that Krebs knows his stuff. He knows his stuff and he's able to push back on kind of talking points or things that sound good. Take a listen to how he pushed back, for example, on something that Mitt Romney and others have said about the need to retaliate. And you said uh, that the cyber U.S. cyber forces need to go in there into the into the, um, the database or whatever and, and engage in hand to hand combat. You heard mm-hmm. Romney, Richard Clark, others have said there needs to be a, a retaliatory attack by the U.S. against Russia. Do you agree? I'd be very careful with escalating this. I think there needs to be a conversation globally, internationally, across like-minded countries about what is, what is acceptable. You know, this is espionage. I think that's in part how it's being characterized. The thing that really concerns me about this particular campaign by the Russians was the indiscriminate nature of the supply chain targeting. The fact that they have potentially compromised 18,000 companies, that to me is outside of the bounds of at least what we've seen recently of uh, espionage activities. So a little fact check on my 300,000. It looks like SolarWinds has 300,000 customers, but 18,000 who are customers of the particular piece of software that was breached. But the point I want to highlight there is, is two things. First of all, he's correcting 
kind of the language that Jake Tapper used earlier in the interview where he kept calling it a cyber attack and Krebs is being very careful and saying actually it's espionage it's they're going in to find information not necessarily to disrupt or change information Uh, and then the other thing that I wanted to point out was his broader discussion saying you know what a lot of people are saying we need to retaliate against Russia but we need to think about this the same way we used to think about things like nuclear weapons and how one of the ways that we have made the world safer in a world of nuclear weapons is by having treaties. Treaties that ban nuclear testing, treaties that ban the use of nuclear weapons for anything other than war, that ban it for uses like, uh, you know, forward combat missions. Uh, And I want to point out that this isn't the first time people have called out the need for a, uh, a cybersecurity sort of treaty nationwide. There was actually a really good journal article that I was able to find by, and I'm going to be very careful with the pronunciation of this author's name. It's Met Ilstrup Sangiovanni. He's, Impressive. He's from the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of Cambridge. And this is a piece that he wrote called Why the World Needs an International Cyber War Convention that was published in 2018. And I'm just going to read you one sh- one paragraph here about it. And here's why he talks about the need for this. He says, quote, We are witnessing the rapid unfolding of an international cyber arms race. Just as the development of nuclear weapons revolutionized strategic thinking after World War II and sparked decades of nuclear arms racing that was only gradually brought under control through intense international diplomacy and formal arms control agreements, new cyber technologies have today sparked a frenzied contest to develop cyber offensive weapons and devise new strategies to defend against them. History suggests that arms races are best controlled through formal multilateral agreements, carefully crafted to reduce fears and tensions, increase transparency, and facilitate reciprocal arms reductions. I thought that was a really good point. And then obviously the whole article goes on to explain why this is important, even though... Even though a number of people have said this is not necessary and that in cyberspace, the best defense is a strong offense. And he's kind of pushing back on that on that uh, notion in this article. So but it's very interesting to see this laid out here. And it's something we're going to have to have a much broader discussion of. Well, speaking of broader discussion, I think we should just jump to the one of my sections because. Sure. You've spoken about a third of what I was planning on talking All right. about. Okay, so we won't get to your quality moment then, or we'll, we'll save we'll it. We'll do it later. We'll do it later. Because it just doesn't make sense to like wait to talk about... About cybersecurity? Yeah, yeah, All essentially. Right. Do, first of all, do you have any any thoughts on some of the points that were made? Yeah, I'm going to go through them because right. they're like often the same. This is why we should refer to each other's... No, we should not. It's all it's all new. It's all on the fly. This is great. <laughs> My feelings are a bunch of ellipses right now. Anyway, so this cyber attack was kind of my interesting moment in journalism that I wanted to talk about. And there were kind of multiple components that I found really interesting. One, as you mentioned, Brendan, it's just kind of a complicated story with lots of information that hasn't even been determined yet. We don't really know the extent of the damage within our government. We don't know if they have been able to reach any classified uh, files or emails. We don't know how extensive the damage was in private institutions. Publicly, we don't know. I'm sure people in the government... No, even still, like some of the experts that were there. Uh, let me go ahead, going. go ahead. And so 
there's a lot of information. There's a lot of shock and a lot of like, can't believe someone was in my house, but not a lot of clarity yet as to what exactly was stolen. Ooh, that's a creepy way to think about oh, it. Oh, I have more creepiness that was shared. So because of that, what I found really interesting is how the shows decided to frame this very emerging story. And yeah. and it, some of the things I noticed were one kind of like, first, what voices were they highlighting? Were they leaning on senators and legislators to explain the story? Mm-hmm. Were they leaning on their journalists uh, or their news team to explain the story? Mm-hmm. Were they bringing in cyber experts to right. explain that story? All three of those different ways. Of course, it might just depend on who you can book. Yeah. But it's going to lead to a very different conversation. Right. And I would encourage our listeners to think about like which conversations you enjoy listening and why, because it'll be very different. Well, and I think that's going to change based on what the topic is, right? Right. Who you want to hear from. Right. And I think, I guess that's why the fact that it's a very TBD story is really important to keep in mind which voices you're elevating at the start, because it's going to frame how you're helping people understand this or not. Yeah, absolutely. So let's look at how Face the Nation does this. I thought this was probably the most well done version of this. First of all, they were able to book the FireEye CEO, Kevin Mandia. And FireEye is actually the cybersecurity company that protects clients from malicious software and investigates hacks. And they were the first ones to discover the hack to begin with. Right. They discovered it before the U.S. government. Before the U.S. government. Yeah. So I think one, a great booking. But I thought it was really effective and important the way Margaret Brennan prioritized the start of this interview. Take a listen to how she starts it with Kevin. It went undetected for nearly nine months. How should the public understand this? How significant is it? Right. Well, there's a lot of ways to look at this intrusion. And first and foremost, it's different than other ones that we commonly respond to. We respond to over a thousand breaches a year. And what separates this is who did it, how they did it, and what they did when they got in. And I'll get to the who probably last, but when you look at the how, Margaret, that's what makes this totally unique. This was not a drive-by shooting on the information highway. This was a sniper round from somebody a mile away from your house. This was special operations, and it was gonna take special operations to detect this breach. So the how they did it was in a way that was utterly clandestine, very difficult to tell, and quite frankly, it was a backdoor into the American supply chain that separates this from thousands of other cases that we've worked throughout our careers. Well, there's another image versus uh, someone in your home, this idea of a, a sniper round from a mile away. Yeah, that there's no way any, you know, rando normal person would be able to tell or even prevent this, that this is elite forces attacking and it takes elite forces to even notice. So how did they notice? Did he explain that? I'm curious what he said. How was FireEye able to detect oh, this Oh, no, intrusion? they didn't talk about like... <laughs> Essentially, I'm sure it was their proprietary. They yeah. don't want to say how they, how they found out. Someone but, told them over drinks. Yeah, <laughs> but again, the just like look at Margaret's words here. Though she says, "How should the public understand this? How significant is it?" She's not saying why is Trump saying it's China when everyone says it's Russia. She's not saying you know what are we gonna do? Is this war? Like she's saying, how should people Americans? 
understand why this is like dangerous. And I think that's important because seems to me is that this could have huge implications and and we'll see what the response is from the U.S. But I think too often when there's kind of a clunky, opaque international situation, too many journalists don't take the time to carefully explain it to the average American. Yeah. And I like that Margaret Brennan focuses on them and also that the answer here from Kevin Mandia is just using language that they can understand. Absolutely. Absolutely. About how this happened and, and why it did go undetected as long as exactly. it did. Versus if you look at Meet the Press, I felt like the focus that Chuck Todd had with Mitt Romney was a lot more on the consequences and what are we going to do back and very kind of like war games type of, I don't know, hyping, it felt like. Oh, kind of similar to what I was talking exactly. about on State of the Union. Listen to how Mitt Romney on Meet the Press differentiates espionage and an act of war. What is, what is the line between espionage and an act of war? And where does this fall? Well, this basically, I mean, I'll step back uh, to respond to that and say, look, you remember about 20 years ago, uh, as we uh, attacked uh, uh, Baghdad, you saw the videos of the rockets going uh, across the, the city and then slamming into various buildings. And the places they attacked, of course, were the communication centers and the utility centers, because you can bring a country to its knees if people don't have electricity, don't have water and can't communicate. And basically, what Russia appears to have done is put themselves in those systems in our country. They don't need rockets to take those things out. They potentially have the, the capability to take out all of those things and doing it remotely at very small cost. So this is a very dangerous and damaging invasion of cyberspace, which has enormous national security implications. And as Bossard indicated, it's going to take us months, if not years, to understand how far they got. So they're not just gathering information. They potentially have the capacity to cripple us uh, economically. They went to our businesses. Uh, they have the potential to also cripple us with regards to our water and electricity and so forth. So this is very, very serious. Sounds pretty scary. <laughs> yeah. Sounds very serious. Sounds like it can have effect on my life in my community, which I think if you're a politician who might be kind of war hawkish or cares a lot about defense, I think making it real for the average American is an effective communication tool and an effective communication strategy. And so obviously not everybody agrees with the way Mitt Romney is phrasing this, but I guess this is what I mean. If you're talking to legislators and they're framing it as a very like battle-like situation, then you're going to think like, oh shoot, is there gonna be like some cyber war coming up? That sounds like kind of crazy, or that sounds scary. And and maybe there is, I don't know, but it's, it's a different, the alarm sounds different, I guess is what I'm trying well, to say. Well, and so a few things that stand out to me. First of all, Mitt Romney said the exact same thing on State of the Union. So he was ready with this right. analogy. Second of all, you talked about him talking about this from a warlike position. Well, the explanation that we heard on Face the Nation from the CEO of the company that discovered this hack, his his kind of like analogy was also violence and even war related, right? He mm -hmm. talked about a sniper with a bullet taking somebody out, but it was a much smaller type of action than like a missile taking out all of you right, know, exactly. your, your systems. So that's one thing that's interesting because both of these are kind of like looking at looking at the situation through the lens of war and violence, right? Right. 
Uh, the other thing I want to... And potential destruction of some kind. Yeah. Now, two things stand out to me that, that occurred to me. First of all, Russia... This reminds me of like when everyone was talking about whether Russia had missiles that could hit the United States. You know, you think of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was all about Russia putting missiles that could be nuclear missiles into Cuba. And once they put those missiles into Cuba, they would have the ability to strike the United States at any time they wanted. And I should say this is the Soviet Union, not Russia, because it was the Soviet Union back then, that they put missiles that they could strike basically as far north as like D.C. or New York with these missiles in Cuba. And so therefore there was a blockade and everyone was on the verge of nuclear war we talked about. But the, the, the resolution of that situation was that the United States made like a quiet agreement with Russia that we would remove, they would remove their missiles from Cuba and we would remove missiles that we had in Turkey that had the same capability to strike Russia and Moscow. And then... What people don't talk about, like the postscript to the Cuban Missile Crisis, and there's a fantastic movie I would highly recommend called 13 Days on this. <laughs> but the postscript that is not in the movie and that is not in a lot of these conversations is that just a few years later, both Russia and the United States developed intercontinental ballistic missiles, missiles that could fire from Russia to the U.S. They didn't yeah, from need, the home countries. Yeah, they didn't need to be close to strike the U.S. with a missile, either nuclear or otherwise. And Mitt Romney talks about, oh, Russia has the ability to do what we did in Baghdad, but do it with cyber, right? Take out our technology, you know, our infrastructure for energy or whatever. Well, they already have that capability now with their missiles. They could, if they wanted to, start a war, take out those same things with a missile. Now, it might be hard for us to detect that they did this, but... Clearly, we determined that if all of our all of our energy systems were going down, you know, something was uh, something was amiss, right? So, I don't know. It's part of me is like, yes, now they might have that capability, and it is disturbing. But they've already sort of had that capability in the real world. Now they just have it also in the cyber well, world. And that's the whole point. Kind of my closing point that I wanted to make is that there's actions, and then that. There's the question of what this might mean for future policy or diplomacy efforts. And Senator Warner on this week kind of probed that question about what this might mean in terms of, one, if this is espionage or an act of war, and how does that then measure what's appropriate for the U.S. response? Senator Mitt Romney called it the modern equivalent of Russian bombers flying undetected over our entire country. Is it an act of war? And if so, how should we retaliate? Well, this is, I'm not sure I agree with Senator Romney's analogy. This is a very, very sophisticated espionage attempt to take information, uh, key information, potentially ability to, uh, to frankly, um, uh, intimidate actual individuals in government as well as intellectual property. Um, but it begs the fact that we really don't have a set of cyber norms. I sometimes think we disproportionately spend on tank ships and guns when we should be better protecting on cyber. And I think not only America, but frankly, our five eye partners, NATO, other, because there are international implications of this attack as well. We need to be very, very clear with a affirmative cyber doctrine that says you do this kind of broad based indiscriminate attack, you will you will bear the consequences. We don't have those kind of um, those norms out there. We knew back in the 20th century when there were um, 
you cross the line militarily, we'll, we'll strike back. There was mutually assured destruction with nuclear weapons. Uh, this is not the level of an attack that, for example, that Russia took on Ukraine, where they were literally trying to shut down systems. Uh, but this is in that gray area between espionage and an attack. And I think the only way we're going to be able to counter it is not only better so cyber hygiene, better protocols on how information must be shared if you are attacked and then making very clear to our adversaries that if you take this kind of action we and others will strike back yeah so this uh, that kind of latter half of senator warner's statement i heard on multiple shows this idea of like a cyber doctrine about what is acceptable what is you know espionage that everyone recognizes everyone is doing versus what crosses a line and then what does that mean yeah kind of like of expectations like the international treaties i was talking right, about exactly. and that chris Krebs was talking about right exactly and so i'm i'm very curious as to how this will play out moving forward later on meet the press i heard it was it was more like a political not rant but they were just it, they were talking about how congress is upset that the White House hasn't been giving them any briefings on this and how it's been so sparse. And that conversation, like, I don't know, it just felt like very, it didn't inform me of a lot, right? Like, of course, the White House isn't being very forthcoming. Like, that's not anything new. So why spend the time for this story focusing on that? I don't know. I kind of go back and forth of like, if I were to spend only 20 minutes over the last week trying to understand the story, what would I want? And who would I want to hear from? And... How does that make me pickier with what shows I listen to? You know, I th I'm trying to challenge myself more on kind of new stories to understand not necessarily how something's resonating, but why it's resonating and if that's what I want to begin with. Well, absolutely. I mean, especially when you have a story like this that is breaking. It, I feel like it's like it's breaking, but every time it like there's a new update it's like oh yeah we're still kind of in the fog right we still don't really know exactly what's going on and then you have these wildly competing you know visions of what this really is and what this means i mean for example to push back on what romney said this idea of either missiles hitting baghdad or in the instance that george stephanopoulos notes you know bombers flying over the u.s um chris Krebs said that look, the, the, the organization in Russia who did this, the SVR, the Russian Intelligence Service, they're intelligence collectors. They're looking for policy decisions and diplomatic negotiations. Their job is not to destroy things. You know, Their job is not to make a mess. It's hard to understand exactly what the full extent is, but I think we're getting little hints of it. And as you say, Naomi, on a story like this, it's really important who you invite on and how you how you manage that conversation. I think part of me, the frustration with some of these interviews with Mitt Romney is that they treat him as an expert rather than as exactly. uh, you know, a source of opinion. They, they're asking him for the analogies, and they shouldn't be asking him for analogies. They should be asking him, like, what are you and Congress going to do about this? Or what should the U.S. do about this? Rather than uh, the analogies of what happened. It's better to see those from, you know, the CEO of FireEye or... Chris Krabs or your own correspondence. Yeah, super, super interesting to, to realize what we're listening to. All right, Naomi, let's get back to a quality moment, okay? Can we get back to your quality moment? What's a piece of, a piece of quality? Why don't we use it as a noun? A piece of quality that you saw. So I have two pieces of, I don't know if I like it as a noun. 
<laughs> you started. You started the I, sentence thinking about it. And I couldn't even it. finish it. I don't like it. Okay. What is it? What do you got? Okay. So I have two. Let's start with the fun one because we were just talking about cyber war for a while. And it That's was. not fun for you? <laughs> nope. Not fun. I really like updating my iPhone. Are you kidding me? No way, Jose. So my, one of my quality moments was something I heard on Face the Nation. It was in Margaret Brennan's introduction, and it was kind of one of those insane lines by Senator Joe Kennedy, which 80% of the time I roll my eyes, and the other 20 are like today where I bust out laughing so loud. I have to stop what I'm doing. And this is Senator Joe Kennedy from Louisiana talking about why people should trust the vaccine for COVID-19. Doses they'll get and when. One message that is clear from doctors and government officials, get vaccinated. Some of my people back home have called me and said, uh, we're scared to take the shot because we don't know what's in it. And I tell them, I ask them, do you eat hot dogs? You don't know what's in a hot dog either, but you got to trust somebody. Surgeon General Jerome Adams. (laughs) Amazing. That is so good. Hot dogs are so questionable, but we eat them every 4th of July. Yeah. You got to trust somebody. Somebody. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Well, the reality is we don't know what's in half the stuff we eat. You know, what is yellow seven? I don't know what yellow seven is. Is that the Mountain Dew thing? No, it's some sort of dye that's oh. in like <laughs> M&Ms, you know? There's yellow seven and blue four. You know what I mean? Like they call these dyes, these dye numbers. But what well, is it? Well, not even that. What like, is it? Where does it come even from? Even beyond that, like how many Americans know what like a dragon fruit is, right? Like, Well, yeah, absolutely. Like even just like actual natural foods, a lot of people don't know what they are. So that was definitely appreciated thank you senator kennedy my other quality moment was also from face the nation and it was an interview that margaret brennan had with mary daly she is the president and ceo of the federal reserve bank of san francisco and they had a conversation about how covid19 has impacted workers this year and what they're what it might mean long term They also focused on one specific population that caught my attention. You're a labor economist. You know a lot about jobs. Uh, In this latest report we got, it looked like there was improvement. But then when you look inside the numbers, it shows that there are a lot of people who've simply given up looking for work. That seems particularly acute among women. Why do you think that is? Well, look, women are really in a bind. Many women still are the primary caregivers in their homes. And we have homeschooling now. So women are being forced to make this really hard trade-off and return to home, give up their careers, give up their jobs in order to make sure that their children are, are well cared for and can get the schooling and education they need. I mean, parenting is also essential work. And these women are taking on that essential responsibility because they don't have the normal school childcare or childcare more generally in the wake of COVID, COVID um, and coronavirus. So we really are going to have to kind of come together to get past COVID, think about how to get these women back in the workforce and back contributing in the way that they really want to, to do both their childcare, their parenting and their vital work. Is this long-term damage to women? It could be if we don't get uh, focused on what do we do to get out of this. I really think this is a good time to think about national child care policies, the understanding that we shouldn't really force people to make trade-offs between family and work. 
Yeah, how are we not having a conversation about childcare right now? How is there not a, you know how there was during the Bush administration, the, the George W. Bush administration, the child tax credit was kind of like invented and they started giving, you know, money to people who had kids every year in their, in their tax rebate and their tax return. How are we not giving massive amounts of money to parents right now? We should just be giving money to everybody at well, this yes. point. Yes. One. <laughs> but seriously, like you, how do you do your job? You know? You How don't, you can't. That's why women aren't right. quitting. Well, exactly. And like, this is so insane that we are just asleep at the wheel. We as a government, as a, as a, as a country, as this is occurring right now. Yeah, it's absolutely a national embarrassment. Our family, pol- like family child care needs are in this country just totally pathetic. But I don't know. I really appreciated a female journalist talking to a female banker, talking about the needs of the female workers in our economy, all vital people leading this conversation. If only some of the men in our Congress could shut up and listen and do something about it. Or hosting the other Sunday shows. Or them too. Wouldn't make it a priority to talk about. Exactly. I mean, and like, I think what Mary Daly here is also doing is so smart and also so true in that this is an economic issue and an affordable and or subsidized child care leads to more women, more, you know, working parents being able to thrive. And like that makes sense for our economy. Like it's just it's it's so painful to think about how much how far we still have to go but i really appreciated this conversation for even happening i have a question for you though yes and you probably don't know the answer i don't know the answer but the question is how many fed reserve bank presidents are there i mean literally margaret brennan has interviewed she's like inventing new fed reserve bank presidents i mean i think they're what six seven twelve i mean how many are there She's had, I swear she's had every single one of them on. Some of them multiple times. Apparently, according to Wikipedia, there's 12. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I guess I wasn't too far off. I mean, I said there was between six and seven and 12. <laughs> All right, Brendan, we have several more sections to go. What do you want to talk about? A moment in journalism or a moment in politics? Yeah, I think we'll do it like a lightning round. All right. Which one? As, uh, as, as we hear from uh, Chris Wallace all the time. Why don't we begin with something quick? This is uh, something that I thought was interesting related to journalism. It might be an interesting, quick discussion. And this is something I saw on both Fox News Sunday and State of the Union. It is the hosts inserting their personal opinions pretty strongly in the last question they ask. Isn't that funny? It's like they they get to the last question. They're like, all right, this is it. Now I'm going to kind of like tell you how I really feel or, or get this off my chest. First, you'll hear from Chris Wallace. He's in conversation with Jen Psaki of the incoming Biden administration. Finally, there has been some criticism recently from conservatives, including some conservatives on Fox News, about the fact that first lady to be Jill Biden goes by uh, the title doctor. Uh, I, I wonder what is the Biden's reaction to that, especially given the fact that so many people over the years, uh, I think of Dr. Henry Kissinger, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, have gone by the title doctor, even though they're not medical doctors, and nobody seems to have made a fuss about that. 
That's exactly right, Chris. It, it's a bit perplexing to me, and I'm sure to millions of Americans, that with thousands of people dying every day of COVID, millions out of work, that anyone would wake up in the morning and decide that the focus they need to have, the way they contribute to society that day, is to question whether or not Dr. Jill Biden, someone who's still teaching, who has a PhD uh, in education, should be called a doctor or not. Of course she should, as anyone who works through that challenging process of getting a PhD. It's a, it's a really silly, sexist, and absurd uh, conversation that's happening a bit in society, and I, I appreciate you asking me about it. Okay, so I'm going to stop it there, because the, the clip was a bit long, but I think you get the point of how Chris Wallace feels about this question in the way he asked it, and the way that he name-checked and called out his fellow journalists and opinionators on Fox News. Well, Chris Wallace likes going against the grain at Fox News sometimes. Yeah. And uh, and clearly he did in that question uh, assert his own position on this topic, which with a lot of really good points about Dr. Henry Kissinger and Dr. Martin Luther King that nobody seemed to have a problem with before. Well, now take a listen to Jake Tapper's last question to Dr. Monsef Slaoui. Lastly, uh, Dr. Slaoui, in addition to being a fellow Eagles fan, uh, I should note that you're an immigrant, as are many key figures in this amazing vaccine accomplishment You were born in Morocco. The CEO of Pfizer is from Greece. The CEO of Moderna is from France. The founder of Moderna is from Lebanon. It's pretty incredible uh, in terms of how many immigrants have contributed to this incredible achievement by the United States. Listen, this is what we all love about America, which is it's a country that is welcoming, and I hope it will continue to welcome immigrants like all the people that you have uh, cited. The opportunities are enormous. The possibilities are frankly limitless. I'm very excited to uh, be a a Moroccan, a Belgian and an American, but it's in the US that the full potential, frankly, of what I could achieve in life is taking place. And, uh, And that's great for America and it's great for the world. And all the people you said I know personally and and I know we all feel at the same time, American and proud of our origins. Well, we're lucky to have you. Dr. Slawi, thanks so much. So, Naomi, you noticed this is that we're, I was playing the clip for you. There's no question. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's no question. Jake's just like, all of our saviors are immigrants. <laughs> Period. It's pretty incredible. Period. And then Slawi has to be like, well, yes, <laughs> that is true. I agree with it. I mean, I'm just surprised the State of Union team didn't like do a little audio insertion of the Hamilton re- remix mixtape. Yes. Where it's immigrants, we get the job done. That mm-hmm. would have been excellent. Yeah. yeah Slowly could have said it too, you know, if he wanted to. He already knows it. Yes, yes, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. It's just like at the end of these interviews, it's like the um, the interviewers kind of, take their shoes off and just kind of like, all right, here's how I feel. No question, just feelings. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think of that, journalistically? (laughs) It's usually inappropriate. (laughs) (laughs) But we happen to agree with both of these positions. So we're just like... I'm not resisting him too much, but probably not the best use of time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Very true on both counts. All right, Naomi, let's finish with your, for you at least, your political thing that stood out what stood out to you politically so something that i thought was just a good use of time and i think 
could possibly be a filler, but a good filler. I don't know. Like I found it worthwhile and, and good use of my time at least was an interview I saw on this week with Jennifer Granholm. She is the former governor of Michigan. Jennifer Granholm was the governor kind of around the 2008 crisis, the recession. She has long been a Democratic kind of pundit and strategist. She taught at UC Berkeley for a long time, and she has been tapped by President-elect Biden to be the energy secretary. And I don't know, the conversation with George was, there weren't any like giant light bulb, like aha moments, but I found it really helpful to learn what the priorities of an upcoming cabinet secretary are. And I just thought like, why don't we do this more often? Like, usually we're not in a pandemic and it's just like weird news in between an election and the inauguration. And in December, there's just like dropping all these cabinet announcements and we don't really do a lot with it. And I just thought it was a really great example as to how people can get to know these nominations better. The first clip was uh, is around the economic opportunity and in investing in climate change, like climate change policies. And the second part is how we do that equitably. As you discussed this job with President-elect Biden, how did he describe the mission, what he wants you to do and why he chose you to do it? I am so excited about this, George, because this uh, combating climate change is such an economic opportunity for this country. There's going to be trillions of dollars spent globally on combating climate change by countries around the world. And so for us as a nation, we have to decide, are we going to get in the game economically? Every country is going to be buying solar panels and they're going to be buying wind turbines and they're going to be buying electric vehicles and the batteries and they're going to upgrade their electric grids. We could be producing that material, those products here in the United States and stamping them made in America and exporting them around the country. We need to be the leader rather than passive bystanders, or otherwise we're going to allow other countries like China and others who are fighting to be able to corner this market. And I will say one other thing, he's very focused as well on making sure that the benefits of fighting climate change, the jobs, are focused on the communities that have been hardest hit by environmental pollution, for example, or that are the poorest communities. So, So both environmental equity, the equity associated with energy opportunity and creating jobs for Americans. That is going to be the mission of the Department of Energy in addition to the great work that they already do. Wow, there's a lady who is excited She's about her so next job. She's so excited. She just wants to talk about it. That is awesome. It was very contagious energy. Got me like thinking about the benefits of a green economy. She probably, you know, I think she threw in the environmental equity because she probably knew she'd get in trouble if she just talked about money and not about kind of equity. But I don't know. It, it'd be great to hear interviews like this across all secretaries or as many as possible because there's a lot of agencies that are not on my radar energy <laughs> being one of them the energy department like i'm much more tuned into what's happening in hhs than what's happening with with what will be happening in secretary granholm's agency and like it's just good to know like i don't need to know all the details but give me a snippet yeah show me some of your passion for this and and she did i mean wow this is actually you know there was a guest from 
the incoming Biden administration on State of the Union. Pete Buttigieg was on. He's right. been, you know, named as potentially the next Secretary of Transportation. He did not bring the same amount of passion. I just want to tell you, just FYI. <laughs> and he had a few, you know, key lines that I thought were compelling, but he didn't really pursue them with a lot of passion or detail or or, or much of anything. He said, you know, clearly he's going to be leading the infrastructure efforts to have a real life infrastructure week, maybe more than just one week. <laughs> <laughs> it's been imagined and hyped for so many years now. Yeah, where we re- rebuild our country's infrastructure. But he didn't really get deep into it. And he kept saying there was a phrase that he used where he was like, he said, Americans should not settle for less with infrastructure. And it was like, he said it a few times, only at one point did he really compare it to what he called peer countries, but he didn't go deep into that, you know? Yeah, that sounds lame. I'm yeah. just going to say it. It sounds real lame. Jennifer Graham got me excited about American manufacturing in a green economy. Way to bring in the details that stay in my brain. Yep, absolutely. Brendan, what is your interesting moment in politics that you noticed today? So the moment that stood out to me was from the interview with Mitt Romney. Now, we've been a little critical of Mitt Romney's kind of haphazard, dangerous take on the cybersecurity intrusion, and maybe it'll end up being accurate. I mean, he was accurate about Russia. Like, Yes. What stood out to me was this conversation about the future of the Republican Party. And the reason it stood out is that Mitt Romney had a lot of interesting things to say, and it ended up being a very interesting conversation. And I feel like this is the conversation that Chuck Todd has been dreaming of having and tried to have multiple times over the course of the several years that Polylog has been in existence with the likes of people like former Governor John Kasich and the one that he tried to have about the Republican Party with outgoing Senator Lamar Alexander last week. This conversation with actual existing Senator Mitt Romney was way, way, way better. Now, at the beginning, they talked about President Trump's concerning moves on Friday that we mentioned earlier about possibly declaring martial law. I want you to hear what Mitt Romney said about this. I want to get to that relief bill in just one second, but first I have to ask you, President Trump held a meeting on Friday in which he reportedly discussed with his disgraced former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, this deranged idea to declare martial law, to force new elections in states that Biden won. They also have discussed appointing conspiracy theorist Sidney Powell as a special counsel to investigate her baseless claims of election fraud and also issuing an executive order to seize voting machines. This is, needless to say, quite alarming and scary to a lot of people. What's your response? What will Senate Republicans do to make sure none of this madness happens? Well, it's not going to happen. Uh, That's going nowhere. And I understand the president is casting about trying to find some way to have a different result than the one that was delivered by the American people. But it's really sad in a lot of respects and embarrassing because the president could right now be writing the last chapter of this administration with a victory lap with regards to the the vaccine. After all, he pushed aggressively to get the vaccine developed and distributed. That's happening on a quick time frame. Uh, He could be going out and championing this extraordinary success. And instead, uh, he's leaving Washington uh, with a a whole series of conspiracy theories and things that are so nutty and loopy 
that people are shaking their head wondering what in the world has gotten into this man. And I, I think that's unfortunate because he has more accomplishments uh, than this, uh, this last chapter suggests um, uh, we, he's going to be known for. So the reason I wanted to play that beyond the fact that it's important to hear somebody push back on what Donald Trump is doing with his days, which repeatedly say nothing on his public schedule, and then he has days that, that we hear reported here, I thought it was important to hear Mitt Romney kind of reflect on what's going on with the Republican Party. And yes, there is an extent to which Mitt Romney is downplaying what is potentially a very dangerous and concerning and, and, and should be sharply rejected idea. But you also hear the sadness in his voice. I mean, he says it's really sad and that it's embarrassing. And you get a sense that he really is sad and embarrassed by it, right? He's not just, Mitt Romney is not just using these words. He really is sad that this is where the Republican Party is, where this Republican president is. And I swear he can't, I, I don't know how he could help but reflect that this could be the last days of his presidency. If he had been elected in 2012, this would be the end, if he had gotten a second term, the end of his second term. And he would be outgoing. And I imagine watching the the contrast is, is astounding for him. But he goes even deeper than that, right? He goes deeper than that at the end of the conversation where Jake Tapper asks him why he's so consistently willing to criticize the Republican Party and what he thinks about it. Republican leaders have either remained silent or actively supported the president's deranged claims about the election. Do you still recognize the Republican Party? Uh, well, the, the party has taken a different course than, uh, than obviously the one that, uh, uh, that I knew as a younger person. Uh, and uh, I mean, the party that, that I knew is one that was very concerned about Russia and Putin and Kim Jong-un and North Korea. Uh, we pushed back aggressively against them. We were a party concerned about balancing the budget. Uh, we believed in trade with other nations. We were happy to play a leadership uh, role on the world stage because we felt that made us safer and more prosperous. And we believed that character was essential in the, the leaders that we chose. Uh, we've strayed from that. I don't see us returning to that for a long time. As I look at the 2024 contenders, most of them are trying to become as much like Donald Trump as they can be. Although I must admit that his uh, style and shtick, if you will, uh, is, uh, is difficult to duplicate. He's an extraordinarily talented person from that standpoint. Um, but um, uh, yeah, I, I represent a very small slice of the Republican Party today. But you know, everybody has to stand up for what they believe. And I believe my colleagues are doing what they think is right. You do you ever think about leaving the Republican Party, as, as Congressman Paul Mitchell did, uh, to protest uh, the attacks on democracy that the Republican Party and President Trump are doing right now? I, I think I'm more effective in the Republican Party, continuing to battle for the things I believe in. And I think ultimately uh, the Republican Party will return to the, uh, the roots uh, that, uh, that uh, have been uh, formed over the, uh, well, the century. So. Uh, We'll, we'll get back at some point and, uh, and hopefully uh, uh, people will recognize we need to take a different course than the one we're on right now. This sounds very, very similar to some questions that Chuck Todd asked Mitt Romney as well today. And he makes the same th claim that the party of 2020, the party of 2016 is very different than the party of 2012 when he ran. Yeah, I just found it to be a really honest discussion about where the party is an honest discussion about where the party has strayed from what previously it stood for 
and where it might be going looking at the 2024 contenders as Mitt Romney describes them trying to be more Trumpish. And I really appreciated the follow-up about, did you, do you ever think about leaving the party as sort of a protest? I, I think the other reason I think these questions are super fair is that I think is because Mitt Romney himself has positioned himself to be kind of the, the Republican who will stand up to the other ones, the Republicans who will say something, the Republican who notices the unprecedented attacks or priorities of this White House. Like he's the one that people call the most and see if they can get a reaction. And so I just value that he respects that role and he takes it seriously. I wonder too what the extent of this conversation is going to be in the future because Romney certainly is representing what looks like the past of the Republican Party and not even the near-term future. He doesn't even say that he, he represents the near-term future of the party. But where do the conversations go about that future? You know, who should they be talking to about the future? Yeah, I mean, this all, it's just interesting because journalists, when they are talking about establishment Democrats, are also often looking back and not looking at progressive voices. In the Democratic Party, it almost makes sense because the establishment is are more moderate and have a bigger, just cumulative voice. But what's interesting here is that a journalist is focusing on what they used to prioritize on looking back, but that but in that perspective, they don't have the majority. They're not the growing mm-hmm. center of power. It's just they like, <laughs> journalists like looking back. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good point. All right, Naomi. Well, we could uh, rhapsodize on the future of the Republican Party forever. But we literally did that last week. Yes. So instead, let's get to show ratings. Rating on a 10-point scale. What is Face the Nation? 7.7. What is... State of the Union. State of the Union was actually a pretty strong episode. So I'm going to give it probably probably an eight and a half. It was wow. pretty good. I think I want to bump up my Face the Nation. I think it's an eight. Okay. All right. So we have Face the Nation, State of the Union. And Naomi, what was this week for you? I think a six. Chris Christie and Rahm Emanuel were on. They were kind of annoying. But no, they were just annoying. <laughs> <laughs> There's no but. Yeah. All right. So it's six for that. How was Fox News Sunday today? Oh, it was not good. I would give it like a four. Ooh, rough. Like I said at the beginning, very kind of slanted in kind of the questions that were at the top of the show. The panel kind of dragged. Ben Dominich refused to answer a question. I understand sometimes you'll invite a politician on and the politician will not answer or address your question. But if you invite a panelist on and they don't answer your question, then it's like, that's it. Show them the door. Like they don't Goodbye. need to be on. They don't. They don't have any need to be on. You have the power as the show about who you choose as the panelist in a, in like a huge way. So I don't know how they can tolerate this. Yeah, boy, bye. So did I, was I clear about that? It's a four. Yes. And Naomi, the last show. How was Meet the Press? I think Meet the Press was like a seven, seven point five. It was a good show. I have a few complaints. Outstanding. All right, Naomi. Well, is there a dialogue challenge this week as we approach the holidays? days away i mean we're already in the holidays i mean christmas is days away i'm just still seeing a lot of vaccine hesitancy and i would encourage you to talk to someone and try to understand why they feel some hesitancy both admiral Drouet and also surgeon general adams both said essentially how people with influence 
can and should kind of promote the vaccine. And I don't know, I kind of took it to heart and I was like, that'd be really cool if everyone realized you know, all of our listeners realize that they can influence, you know, one, two, three people. Or if all of our listeners can encourage their people to either consider the vaccine, take the vaccine, or have a conversation with their doctor about the vaccine, like, wow, that would be incredible. Absolutely. And to add in the armament to that conversation, there's quite a few things I learned about the vaccine this week in my day job. And uh, I, I thought there are some things that might be useful in that conversation. Number one, Uh, which is very interesting. You know, people talk about allergic reactions to this vaccine. Well, in the Pfizer study, what it was determined was, you know, obviously there was a placebo group, you know, a group of people who just got a shot that had nothing in it, and then a group of people that actually got the vaccine. The people who had the shot that had nothing in it, 0.5%, that's a half of a percent of those people, had an allergic reaction, an allergic reaction to nothing, just to a shot. And the people who got the vaccine, 0.6% had an allergic reaction. So 0.1% difference in the allergic reactions between the placebo group and the vaccine group. Not a lot of allergic reactions, right? The other thing that's interesting and that I have found very compelling or people I've had conversations with have found very compelling is to talk a little more about messenger RNA. Messenger RNA is the new platform that was used to create this vaccine. And what it means is that there is no actual virus of any kind, no particle of the virus. No live virus. Yeah, no live virus, no attenuated virus, no piece of the virus, nothing in the vaccine itself. The vaccine simply tells your body how to identify the spike protein that is on the coronavirus, that makes the corona, corona meaning like crown, the little parts that stick out that give it its name. Yeah, the surface protein. Mm -hmm. Right. It tells that your, your body how to identify that and then attack it if it sees it. And so I think that's like puts a lot of people at ease because they realize that like there is nothing in this in this vaccine itself except the messenger RNA, which causes zero genetic changes, can't cause any genetic mutations within your body whatsoever. So knowing those things about kind of how it works and what's actually in it in the hot dog can be very compelling to people. Yeah. And if you're still curious, like find some public health officials, find some medical providers. There's been some really great people I have found on Instagram who are OBGYNs and doctors and pediatricians who talk about this vaccine and use their expertise to just kind of do it in layman's terms. And I have found that so effective. And so, you know, look at your question list and see who can help answer them. Well, that's it for Polylog. If you have any questions, thoughts, holiday messages, whatever, you can always email us at podcast at polylog.com. Again, we love the feedback that we got, not just because it was all good, but we just love getting (laughs) feedback, (laughs) although a lot of it was good. We love getting feedback, so do send that our way. Yep, and you can do that by email and also via Twitter at polylogcast on Twitter. You can reach out to me directly at bsteidel. And you can reach out to me at soronaomi underscore. So happy holidays, Merry Christmas, you know, enjoy enjoy your holiday to the extent that you can and know that we're going to be entering a brighter, more wonderful year. Let's all make it there safely. Yeah, celebrate all the things you can. Yes. Celebrate safely and watch some watch some like holiday movies. That's there's nothing dangerous in that. Gives you some cheer. Maybe you can't get a, get together with everyone, but you know, watch some watch Do some whatever movies. you want. I'm just saying it's an, it's an it's I know, but like something you can do. 
don't do it whatever you want don't go to see your you know people no, that but you like, be seeing of course but I'm saying like have like a pedicure party and just like give yourself the most like amazing pedicure or a like one person pedicure party yeah like treat yourself yes. like do whatever you want at home like yes pantsless Christmas that sounds great <laughs> just stay safe everyone stay safe and talk to you next week next week between the two holidays of course of course bye bye